The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's Keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Valentine's Day was this week, so it was fitting that I saw so many people on Twitter fall helplessly in love with the latest Republican plan for a carbon tax. The plan is beautiful, it's elegant, but are supporters getting seduced into a flawed relationship only to get dumped once again by Republicans in Congress? Or are we actually witnessing the birth of a real romance? We'll discuss the newest gossip and chatter around a carbon tax plan in Washington. Then there's a movement afoot to get scientists running for office. Should clean energy professionals follow? Finally, remembering Art Rosenfeld, the godfather of energy efficiency. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, as always, are by my side, virtually at least. Catherine's in Washington, D.C., and I think since we recorded last, I've seen you tweet from like three or four different events. I can't keep track of you. Let's just say I spent a romantic Valentine's Day at Nehruk. <laughs> Jigger Shaw is in New York City. Have you been uh, bouncing around or just keeping tight in the city? Just New York City and San Francisco, my two usual hangouts. Good. Well, we're not going to be in either of those cities. We're going to be in Washington this week because we are discussing this new carbon tax and dividend idea. Last week, a group of highly respected Republicans published a plan for a $40 per ton carbon tax on point-of-source emissions from coal, oil, and gas. With a Republican White House and Congress, they argued, now's the perfect time to show America that conservatives have better ideas than the command-and-control Democrats who are only interested in more regulation as a solution to climate change. And if you didn't know anything about the last eight years of congressional politics, you might think, hey, that's a great idea. Because in theory, it is. A steadily rising carbon tax is the most economically efficient way of dealing with carbon pollution. But it certainly doesn't play well in American politics. And now that Republicans have control of Congress and the White House, they really have no incentive to trade a carbon tax for an end to regulations. They're just going to end regulations. So... Catherine, we'll talk about the political trade-offs or what people hope will be the political trade-offs. What did you think of this report, the, the plan itself? One of a few that have come out from prominent conservatives, but I will note a much higher carbon tax. This $40 per ton carbon tax is much higher than what others have laid out. Yeah, and I would just say, I think to get anything like this done, you need sort of two things. One is a policy that works. And the other is the political pathway to get it done. So on the policy front, which is the $40 a ton, that's great. It's still really tricky because it's cross, it's totally across the economy. And you need other policies to make sure that other things are dealt with. Other greenhouse gas emissions are dealt with, like methane. Um, and 
in from that standpoint, that is really tough because you need both the tax and dividend, which is a which is in in theory a good structure, but you also need to make sure that you have other policies in place. And if you look globally at who's been able to get tax carbon taxes put into place, forty dollars a ton is just not reasonable. So the highest right now is Sweden, which is one hundred and thirty, and that's just for transportation and heating sectors. Then Switzerland and Finland are at sixty two, Norway at fifty three, Tokyo at thirty eight. But those are not anything like the U.S. The U.K. and a few other countries, Denmark, Ireland, some of the progressive com- countries, Slovenia, are at twenty seven. But then France is at fifteen, and everything falls below that. So I don't even think, from a a policy standpoint, you could get more than $15 a ton. So I think theirs is extremely aspirational. And on the political side, there's no way. There's not a single Republican, much less a Republican leader in Congress that is on board with this at all. The House passed a resolution last year that said this would be detrimental to the economy. And these guys did get in to see Trump, who says, of course, that climate change is a hoax. But Grover Norquist with Americans for Tax Reform, who is uh, anti-tax increase of any sort, is also going to go in to Trump and say, yeah, you know, the carbon tax? Yeah, no. So I don't see politically how this is viable either. I want to discuss the politics, but let's rewind. And I want to try to understand what you said there in the beginning. So they are saying in exchange for getting rid of certain regulations, most notably the Clean Power Plan, we should put in place this $40 per ton carbon tax for coal, oil, and gas that will steadily rise over time, pay the dividends back to taxpayers. That could be $2,000 per household yearly. Um, and what you're saying is that, yeah, that's that's all well and good, but just focusing on coal, oil, and gas doesn't get us looking at things like methane emissions or uh, the transportation sector or all these other important components of the economy that may need other types of regulations to tackle emissions? Is that basically what you said? Yeah, that's right. And um, not only that is what what they're offering is this trade off. And that's a little tricky because they want to trade off the Clean Air Act um, ability to regulate greenhouse gases, in other words, carbon, but there are a lot of other greenhouse gases in there too. But if you give up the ability to do carbon, then you're releasing your jurisdiction. And if you do that, then it's really hard to get anything else done. And so, you know, that leads to the politics of like, there's not an environmental group that's going to be okay with giving up EPA authority with that kind of uncertainty about what else is out there that we need to regulate. Is it really such a big problem, though? I mean, couldn't you have a hybrid approach? Or couldn't you say, well, let's, if this is successful, let's create some sort of uh, cap and trade or cap and dividend approach to methane emissions and other forms of pollutants, like we did with, you know, NOx and SOx emissions? Yeah, so I think one of the issues is you have to really take a a decision as a country that you want to lower carbon and figure out is this going to do it all? And where are the gaps? And how do we then, you know, in the short term, and then longer term, and and in the very long term, how do we capture those gaps? And, And some of this is having to wait for it to spin out. And there's going to be a period of time of adjustment if you put something like this into place, where you're not exactly sure how economically it's going to affect every sector, and where those gaps are going to be. But you have to have taken a decision as a country that you're going to do it. And I just... I don't know. It's very complicated. And we would have to really come together on how are we going to do it? And how's it really going to happen? And I think just having 
the tax piece. That's one piece of it. And certainly globally, that's what all the all the oil majors, everybody agrees that's the way to do it. The devil's in the details. Mm, that coming together part. That's the tricky one. Jigger, your thoughts. I think there's a Beatles song like that, right? Um, <laughs> no, look, I I um, understand where Catherine's coming from and completely agree with her. I I think that, first of all, I think the vast majority of this work occurred around the time that I was talking about the carbon tax on the energy gang um, with Jerry Taylor around the deal to remove um, EPA's power to manage carbon dioxide in exchange for a carbon tax. And that is what they proposed. And so I think this was recycled because they had already done all the work to create the backup documentation for this trade when, you know, Hillary was elected president. And when she wasn't elected president, it died a horrible death. And that's basically what Grover Norquist said in his tweets. And so um, so it is what it is. I mean, I, I don't know that I'm as pessimistic about the merits of the case as Catherine is. But I, but I do think that um, the $50 a ton tax uh, is moving forward in Canada. I think Justin Trudeau has really been a big proponent of it. And I think that the work that was done by these Republicans, which I'm not quite sure you can even call them Republicans anymore, since the Republican Party has sort of morphed into something really weird and different now. Um, you know, like, I do think that the intellectual work done here can be leveraged by the Canadians. So, I mean, all in all, I think it was a good effort. Yeah, and I'm not saying they shouldn't still keep pushing it. I think it's really important to have those voices out there. And these guys have been at it for a long time. Jim Baker and George Schultz have been working on this for a long time and really believe in it. And at some point, we're going to really, really need it. And at some point, somebody's going to say, somebody in leadership in Congress is going to say, all right, what's out there that's workable and that we can use? And they're going to have to have something. And this is you know, right now, this is a proposal that has been vetted and has been worked on. And, you know, at some point, it could become politically viable. Well, God bless them for working on this issue, because it's certainly not easy. And I do know that um, Jim Baker, who's the former Secretary of State under Reagan, and Ted Halstead, who is the founder of the Climate Leadership Council, who has been kind of working on variations of a carbon tax plan for, gosh, I think 20 years, and who finally kind of brought all these prominent Republican figures together. They had a meeting at the White House with top staffers there. I have not seen how that meeting went. The, the fact that they actually got a meeting is pretty good. Although, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore got meetings too. And we saw how the president reacted after those. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the, the politics here are kind of interesting because... I've talked to a few people in the carbon tax camp. Um, you know, I had a conversation a while ago after Trump was elected with uh, Alex Bosmoski, who is uh, a, a, a guy who helped co-found Republican with Bob Inglis. And he said, gosh, I'm really bullish now. You know, I, I think that we can start having different conversations about how to put a price on carbon. And, you know, I, I choose to look at this through a positive lens. But, you know, Grover Norquist's reaction last week, I think, sums up the tricky politics of this. Yeah, maybe some Republicans would have considered a trade-off for getting rid of the clean power plan and other top-down regulations for a steadily rising price on carbon. But now they control the White House and Congress, so they don't need to do that. There's no trade-off. The political calculation is that they don't want to touch this stuff because they're afraid of their constituents 
um, backlash, and they really have no no incentive to make some sort of trade-off because there is no trade-off anymore. But I do think that the efforts that Justin Trudeau are doing in Canada will bode well for what we're doing here in the U.S. So, I mean, I do think that the the data coming from that effort will inform efforts that might come into the U.S. later. I'm a little bit ignorant on the politics of how this is working in Canada. What could the U.S. possibly learn from what's happening there, Jigger? I don't, I don't so, know how to apply them. Yeah, so, I mean, several years ago, um, can't, the British Columbia, the, a province in Canada that includes Vancouver, um, put in a carbon tax. Justin Trudeau, when he came in as... Um, um, as uh, Prime Minister of Canada, uh, announced that every single province in Canada has to have a $50 carbon tax by and, next date. And Alberta, and if they, you know, Alberta has a $30 per ton carbon tax going into effect 2018, and that's where right. all and the that oil came from. Are. Well, and that came from Justin Trudeau's. Um, so British Columbia was first, and then Alberta's was in response to his mandate. And so, and so several of the, like Saskatchewan and others are arguing with him and saying that we're not going to do it and da da da. And so there's a lot of back and forth and the politics are real here, but I think those politics will inform a lot of the different constituencies in the U.S. as well. Um, and so, I mean, I, I do think it's going to work. And I, I do think some of these trade-offs between sectors is where we want more data, where Catherine was talking about. So how does this affect the greenhouses and agricultural sector in Alberta? How does it affect oil sands? How does it affect, you know, like transportation? And the way in which these trade-offs work and whether there's actually a real reduction in carbon emissions is what people are testing. Because if you do all this work and you don't get a, a carbon reduction, then it's sort of all for naught, right? Yeah, and we'll be also be able to test different economic uh, data points so we can see how it's affecting their economy as well. And I think I, I like the point about looking at Canada and looking globally writ large because other countries are taking the stand the eu is and like i said the majors are really thinking about this and and so i actually look to see what rex tillerson at state's going to do because he operates in that same world or he did operate in that same world as the members of opec who are all talking about carbon tax as well and i'm just wondering um you know how that will impact what we do as a nation as you know, on on climate negotiations, and then what he can bring back to the to the president and Congress. I called up Bruce Hagen, who is uh, director of clean energy business engagement at the Citizens Climate Lobby, and I wanted to get like the bullish take for a carbon tax because I'm super skeptical that this will work given the state of politics. And he said, look, after Trump's election, a lot of people are coming to them and saying, what can we do? How can we help? How can we put pressure on our lawmakers? Um, how can we submit op-eds, go to more town halls? And in a very short period of time, over the last year or so, their membership has tripled. And they're setting up more national calls. They're seeing a lot more passion from people who are looking around and saying, I kind of feel helpless. I need to know what to do. And so they feel like they can put enough pressure on certain lawmakers to actually make this an issue and get a bill introduced that looks similar to this new Republican plan uh, in the next, you know, within this session. So that's kind of the bullish take that the grassroots effort is stronger than ever. 
There's renewed pressure for people to go and speak their mind at town halls. And the Citizens Climate Lobby has always kind of used the town hall approach. But now a lot of people are feeling galvanized. And so they believe that they're going to leverage even more support for this. Yeah, they may feel galvanized for a number of other reasons outside of climate, but you're right that this at least gets people engaged and and out there talking to their members of Congress and holding them accountable. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. Moving on. It's a pretty dark time for science, particularly climate science in this country. President Trump has surrounded himself with a team of professional climate skeptics. Government climate scientists are busy backing up data, fearful that much of it will be lost or censored under the new administration. The House Science Committee continues to tweet out garbage written by people like James Dellingpole, a climate denier who has been debunked more times than the faked moon landing. So now there's a movement afoot to get scientists to run for office, and it appears to be working. A number of prominent scientists are eyeing seats in Congress or local seats in their state legislatures. And this got me thinking, should there be a similar movement afoot in the clean tech business world? There's a lot of fossil fuel money sloshing around the halls of power than renewables money, and that's likely not going to reverse anytime soon. So if you believe that we need to transition to a cleaner energy system as quickly as possible, should you run for office rather than take that, say, that sales job at a national solar developer? It's worth pondering. Uh, Jigger, do you think more people in this field, particularly young people who come to us and say, How can I get involved? How can I make a difference? What area should I be looking at? Should they be considering public office? Well, I think everyone who has the stomach for running for public office should run. Um, For, you know, for folks who don't know, I mean, I'm on the board of Climate Hawks, which is a group that actually is trying to make this happen. So I certainly have a vested interest in trying to get more people to run for office. And I do think that we should first note that we have some wins, right? Jerry McNerney and um, Raja you know, Krishnamurthy are both clean energy professionals who did run for office and won. So, you know, so I think that's great. Both, um, you know, Raja had a solar company and Jerry w- was at Flowind and a few other places, PG&E. Um, so I think that's really good. I also think like Tulsi Gabbard, for instance, from Hawaii, I mean, uh, her father and I, you know, worked a lot, Mike Gabbard, to get a lot of the policies in place in the state legislature in Hawaii. So she has a lot of um, firsthand knowledge around what it takes to be you know, a, a real effective advocate for our issues. And I do think it's important. I mean, one of the reasons the solar industry was so successful early on in the House was because we uh, had champions like Gabby Giffords. I mean, um, you know, unfortunately, she got shot and then left the the um, the House. But 
Um, but I remember, you know, Gabby used to call me and, and just like randomly on my cell phone and say, what more can I do for the solar industry? What more can I do? Right. And so I do think it's critical for us to to have more representatives in the House. And I think that we are, um, you know, I think we are finding a lot of energy there. I also think that the, you know, the the author of that piece, Shauna, uh, Millennials Don't Want to Run for Office, I do think was sort of taken out of context Oh, let me, let me just of... stop you there because uh, uh, Jigger is referring to an article in the Washington Post from last year that I sent around in preparation for this conversation from a researcher at Rutgers who had surveyed hundreds of millennials about their appetite for running for office. And she basically said that millennials across the board uh, do not, absolutely do not have any appetite for public office. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we we know her personally at Climate Hawks, and I think her her work was taken out of context. I mean, she was studying law and public policy folks um, at the graduate level in the Boston area. And her finding was that, you know, the people she studied were skeptical around whether elected office was the most effective way of changing things. And she was also focused a lot on women and minorities who um, were more afraid of the personal costs um, of doing that. But she really wasn't making the argument that millennials as a generation are more skeptical for running for office. And I think that's important because we're finding exactly the opposite. I mean, I would say at Climate Hawks, um, the number of people who have registered through our website to say that they're interested in running for local office, not U.S. Congress, but like local school boards and city councils and other offices are up 10x from before the election. Um, and the amount of money that we've been able to raise um, from people who want to like support these folks is up 10x from before the election. So I think that we are two orders of magnitude like towards, you know, making a positive difference in this space. Yeah, I would say um, I completely agree. We need more people who understand science and technology and are fact-based on the Hill. There are very few. There are only two that have PhDs. Bill Foster from Illinois, who worked at Fermilab, and and as Jigger said, uh, Jerry McNerney, who has a PhD in math. Um, Martin Heinrich, uh, Senator Heinrich uh, from New Mexico, is an engineer, as is Tonko um, from upstate New York, who is also an engineer. And there are a few others that have, you know, degrees in science like Joe Barton um, from Texas, Louise Slaughter, a microbiologist, but very few women. Oh, Angus King had a, uh, the independent from Maine senator had worked for a wind company and um, did a lot of work on energy efficiency. So there are some people, there are sites like uh, Run for Something, that's a progressive site, but 314action.org. But then there are also sites for women. And I would just say women need to start running also. There's Running Start, she should run.org. Um, Emerge America is more of a Democratic focus site. Um, but par- part of the issue is it is so expensive to run. So in 2012 alone, it cost an average of $1.689 million for a House seat and over $10.5 million for a Senate seat. It just costs so much money to run for office. And so part of this is how do we organize people so that we can support them and get them what they need so that they can run, whether it's through volunteer work, um, you know, pro bono work, or actually start raising money for them because that's part of the issue is that young people don't necessarily have the funds to be able to run well that's that's true but i mean if you look at like you know jamie raskin who replaced chris van holland's uh district i mean jamie really was an environmentalist at heart right out of tacoma park maryland um and he raised more money than um than um was it kathleen matthews and then 
um, and then a few other folks. And Kathleen was like a you know like a newscaster in the area, so she had great name recognition. And he ended up was he was able to raise a lot of money and win, right? So I I actually think that like what we need people to do right now is just run for office. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who like, and I'm not talking about Congress, which I agree with you uh, is very expensive, but I think it's really more around just getting people to run for any office, like local office. We need a pipeline of people. And I'm not talking about Democrats. I mean, Republicans, Democrats, whatever. Um, We just need a pipeline of people who care about facts and care about clean energy and care about our issues. Um, The other point I wanted to make was that I do think that, you know, Earth Day has, uh, Earth Day Network has played a big role here with the March for Science that's happening on Earth Day this year. And I do think getting scientists um, and engineers and others to get out of you know, sort of their work and their textbooks and into sort of organizing and activism really does matter. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see how many people show up for this March for Science. Yeah, and I agree. Building the bench is going to be really important and getting younger people involved. The average age of a member of the House of Representatives is 57 and in the Senate, 61. Um, and of course they're, um, 80% dudes. So, I mean, it is like old white guys for the most part and getting younger people, women, people of all different backgrounds and different colors is going to be really important. You sort of answered it in your last answer, Jigger, but I want to be more explicit about it. If someone comes to you and says, Hey, I want to get into this industry. Do you think that they could make an equal, if not more, more of an impact by running for public office. Um, Absolutely. Is, is, is it a good option? It is a good option, but I do think that people have to go into this with eyes wide open, right? I mean, you know, running for public office means that you actually enjoy talking to people that you don't know, right? I mean, and, you know, earning their vote and earning their trust and doing all the things that you have to do. You can't just say, I've got a great resume, I'm going to run for office, right? And so I think that like any position that people go after, whether it's a position in writing or in finance or in in communications, um, this is a position that you have to understand the qualifications for and you have to want to sign up for, right? And I think, um, but, but I do think like a lot of the people that are in the um, the climate lobby and some of these other organizations who are doing grassroots organizing anyway are very like, you know, like very qualified for, for running for office. I mean, they, that is what they're doing is reaching out to new constituents and convincing them that putting a price on carbon is really valuable, right? I mean, those are exactly the people that we want running for office. Well, if there's ever been a time to call for people who want to take a sensible approach to environmental protection, um, climate policy, and the transition to a clean energy economy, now is the time. There has never been a more important time for people, again, across the political spectrum who just have sensible, grounded-in-fact solutions to, to help with the pretty severe problems that we face. Um, this, is, this is really an extraordinary time for that. And then just one last note, uh, you mentioned Shauna Shames from Rutgers who um, had that survey of millennials, and and she pointed out in that Washington Post piece that the issues that millennials cared most about were strong economy, racial issues, gender equality, uh, social justice, and environmental conservation, all of which take uh, an extraordinary push in public policy to grapple with. Um, So the issues that 
millennials are supposedly most passionate about require significant amount of public policy. If you have both a law and a unit of measurement named after you, you know you've had a really productive life. Art Rosenfeld, often called the godfather of energy efficiency, had both. There is the Rosenfeld effect, which is the decoupling of California's energy consumption from population and economic growth starting in the 70s. And then there's the Rosenfeld, an unofficial unit of energy savings, the equivalent of 3 billion kilowatt hours of saved electricity, or about one coal plant. Art Rosenfeld pioneered the modern energy efficiency movement. And after his passing late last month at age 90, we are going to take some time to remember his career and impact, which is quite significant. Catherine, can you provide us a bit more background on who Art was and what he accomplished? Yeah, so he really was as close to royalty as you could be on energy efficiency. And I remember um, working early on, my husband was the policy director for the Alliance to Save Energy for a number of years. And whenever art would come in, I would always just feel insufficient, like I just hadn't done enough. And he was one of those folks who started at Berkeley as a physics professor. And he decided during the Arab oil embargo, I'm going to apply this to energy efficiency and I'm going to solve problems with that will have immediate results. And I'm going to turn uh, particle physics into a, a career in energy efficiency. So he got busy on it. And um, he trained people. He started the ACEEE, which is the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. That was started out of what he called a cold fury at President Carter, who wanted to fund sin fuels. And President Carter's um, only contribution to energy efficiency was to say, wear a sweater. Um, and they were so angry that they thought, we need to put together an organization that really advocates for energy efficiency. So they built ACEEE. Howard Geller was the first employee and the first executive director. And it's still going strong and doing some of the best uh, energy efficiency analysis out there. So he he's not only, um, he's changed the lives of thousands of people, but he also was able to keep California's energy use constant since 19. 1973, with all the policies they put in place in California that were a result of what he did, um, as the U.S. Um, energy rose 50%, California stayed steady. The other fun fact about Art was he actually studied particle physics under Enrico Fermi, of all people, yeah. right, who was noted for building... He was his last graduate student. I mean, it's extraordinary, right? I mean, I just... I, I only met Art once, and it was from afar at a lecture, and and so I didn't know him, but... Um, but his his influence is you know widespread, and I do think that it's um, you know really with a heavy heart that he passed away. Yeah, he said, "What is dirt cheap? In other words, oil and gas gets treated like dirt, and we just use it. So energy is dirt cheap, and we we treated it that way. And he sort of changed the way we think about energy. I had when I was in San Francisco last week, I had dinner with Diane Grunick, who was um, the California Public Utility Commission and knew him for years um, as he was with the California Energy Commission. And she's dedicated one of her classes to him um, at Stanford. And she she said he really made her think that she could change the world with energy efficiency. What's extraordinary about his career is that he did so much on the technology side and so much on the policy side. So he convinced Jerry Brown to set up the first efficiency requirements for appliances, and that kind of put in motion all these other standards that flattened California's energy consumption, as you pointed out, Catherine. And then also at the same time at this Center for Building Science at Berkeley, 
They were working on early compact fluorescent lamps, on other efficient light bulbs, on um, coatings for window glass to prevent thermal leakage, um, early like analytics programs, computer programs for monitoring building usage. I mean, he both basically set in motion the modern policy movement for energy efficiency and PG&E at that time in the 70s hated him for it. <laughs> um, I think they and, still kind of hate him for it. <laughs> very, very likely. I guess a, a lot of utilities probably do who are facing major efficiency requirements. But he, he really did so much on the technology development side and also put in place all the policies that, that have been in place for the last couple of decades. Um, just, you know, really miraculous what he was able to do. Yeah, and he also helped us decouple that energy use from economic growth. Yeah, I think he did. I mean, the one thing I would say, and you know, this is not anti-art in any way, I, is I do think that art was really, you know, the godfather of energy efficiency 1.0. And I do think that one of the things that we're doing now, and it's really obvious at this point, is is moving to very definitively energy efficiency sort of 2 or 3.0, right? I mean, that the notion of of electricity saved at any time of the day is what we're moving on to. I mean, I know from NYSERDA's perspective, you know, the $8 billion a year that all of us are spending, you know, on energy efficiency programs are really going away and we're really moving towards um, energy efficiency procurement, right? Where we're actually looking to pay for DERs, where we're paying for energy efficiency like you pay for a power purchase agreement, Um in solar or wind um, by time that it's produced. And so I do think that, you know, um, it's an extraordinary thing to me to see what foundation he built and what we're doing with that foundation now. Yeah, and that he sent all these missionaries out to start doing other types of energy efficiency too, because so many of that energy efficiency 2.0 and 3.0 can be traced back to to people that he educated all along. I would just say one thing to look at is artrosenfeld.lbl.gov. It's a really nice site that has a lot of videos about him. It has lectures by him. It shows him getting the National Medal of Technology and Innovation from President Obama in 2013, which is incredibly touching and well-deserved. So I would just recommend going and uh, spending some time at that site. All right. It is that time of the show when we tell you something you may not know. Jager, what's your story this week? Well, you know, as many people know, this week is Valentine's Day. And, um, you know, I was just really um, enamored with uh, all of the great, you know, sort of like outpouring of, of you know, like emails that I got uh, on Valentine's Day from the solar industry. I think we're getting to the point where our communications, you know, style, like we're actually tailoring our marketing materials to like what's happening in the consumer economy, which I thought was was really extraordinary, right? I mean, this is, it was not but like two or three years ago that I thought our industry was completely and utterly cheesy. And I think we're getting to the point where we're far more sophisticated about this. There's a photo that I tweeted out that um, a lot of other folks have used, you know, where there's a solar panel installation that sort of looks like a heart. And um, I don't know, I just like, I'm really like, thankful that we're getting to that level of professionalism in our industry. Oh, sure. You give the solar industry a shout out, but you never got back to me in my love letter. Hey. 
<laughs> things come from to best things come to those who wait, right? <laughs> That's right. So, uh, I can't wait any longer. What is yours, Catherine? Tell me something I don't know. Uh, another little Valentine. And this is thanks to my business partner, Isaac Brown, who went to a hearing this week of the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Energy, where they talked about modernizing energy and the electricity delivery systems. And they talked about grid modernization, and they even talked about renewable energy and not in a bad way. What? So this, he said, I know it was very, he said it was very bipartisan. Um, chairman, the subcommittee chairman, Fred Upton from Michigan, talked about renewables and storage, um, as well as the need to upgrade and modernize the grid. Chairman Walden, who chairs the full committee, is from Oregon, and um, he talked about needing infrastructure legislation this year, that they're going to work on it. Um, Bobby Rush is the ranking member from Illinois, the Democrat, and he talked about economic opportunity in low-income areas. And um, I think this is a great opportunity for us. And, it, and, you know, there's a lot of noise right now in Congress. There are a lot of things that aren't getting done. But I think the conversation continues, um, maybe not in terms of carbon or or clean energy, but really on grid transformation. And I think that all leads to a cleaner grid. Okay, mine is a bit of bad news. Um, yesterday, I found out in a flurry of communications that NRG Home Solar is shutting down its installation business. And I don't think there's any need to kind of go into the background of NRG's troubles on the distributed energy side. But it's kind of, you know, interesting to see this company that bought up the the stranded assets of Varengo Solar after it went bankrupt. It bought up the, the, the solar assets from uh, Next Step Living, which was struggling and eventually went bankrupt. Um, and now it's completely spinning off its residential business. So NRG kind of grew way too fast. Their customer acquisition costs were too high. There was a lot of invest- investor pressure to get rid of the business. And last May, they announced on an investor call that they were cutting 500 jobs and limiting their focus only to Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey. Their installations fell way down. Um, they you know, they got rid of um, a ton of people. And Kelsey Pegler, who was the CEO of Roof Diagnostic Solar, the eighth largest solar installer, uh, who they acquired in 2014. He left. It was kind of a, a bloodbath, but they said, okay, we're going to hone in. We're going to make this a, a tight ship. And they decided that it just wasn't tight enough and they had to get rid of the entire installation business. So just um, another sign of how difficult it is to have a national model in solar installation. I should say as a side note that NRG has one of the biggest portfolios of renewables um, and they bought up a bunch of assets from Sun Edison. They have, you know, a couple gigawatts of projects in the works. Um, so they're they're doing a lot in renewables. But this home solar piece, man, it's tough. And they're just going to do sales origination to their retail customers and then pass those on to other installers who can hopefully figure this business out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel bad about NRG um, home shutting down. But I do think that that the laws of physics still apply, right? You can't spend, um, you know, three, four thousand dollars to acquire each customer and expect to be profitable. Um, and I think that for whatever reason, NRG was not focused on leveraging just its retail um, 
marketplace where they serve a lot of retail customers in Texas and other places as their sales channel. And they, they weren't willing to just limit themselves to the low-hanging fruit that you can get. And I think that is something that's played out across the residential supply chain, whether that's Solar City or Sungevity or or Sunrun or others. I mean, basically, people have to realize that there's a limit to how much you can spend on growth. And everyone who overspent on growth is now pulling back. And I do think that's going to mean a much more resilient and sustainable residential solar industry. Yeah, certainly many more of the companies that we know today will no longer exist um, in, in the future. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get ahead of my skis here, but I know that there are significant troubles still ongoing at Sungevity. And so I would keep my eyes on that company as they try to, you know, figure out, <laughs> figure out their next move. Well, um, that's going to do it for us, folks. Our next move is to get you to rate us and review us on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio or whatever app you use. We would love to get your feedback, and it it really does help us get more listeners. And just pass a link on to your friends or colleagues if you think that they would want to wonk out with us. Um, Of course, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, NPR One, SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasts. And send us a note at podcasts at greentechmedia.com, or better yet, tweet at us. Um, email can get a little bit tough so we always see your tweets and we appreciate your feedback any way you reach out to us Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week and weekend and we'll catch you next week terrific thanks you too jigger talk to you later always a pleasure with Catherine hamilton and jigger shaw i'm stephen lacy and we're the energy gang a production of greentechmedia.com we'll catch you next time mm-hmm.